Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, we're in uh, Daniel chapter 11, and we're going to look at Earth's past and its future. And this is a part one out of chapter 11, because uh, we're only going to make it so far in chapter 11. So in chapter 11, what we're getting now is the interpretation of the vision that Daniel received in chapter 10. And let me always reiterate when it comes to chapters like these, because there's so much, so, it's so specific uh, what he's what he's uh, in this vision, that uh, once again, as I've told you before, there are so many people that will doubt Daniel. They will state that he had to have lived later on, that he could not have lived when he lived, because he, he, he nails all these prophecies. He, he, he gets history down to the T, and you're going to find it again right here. I mean, what he, uh, this vision and this understanding and interpretation. Now, as we go through chapter 11, once again, it's a double prophecy. So what you're going to get on the one side is you're going to get a few hundred years into Daniel's future. But you're also going to get thousands of years into Daniel's future and still in our future when it goes thousands of years into his future. So you're getting this kind of a double whammy prophecy right here. And also remember, if you remember last week in Daniel chapter 10, it's such an intense vision that he can't eat, he can't sleep, he can't drink, he doesn't even put lotion on his body, and he's just a mess for like 21 days. It's really, really heavy on his heart, this thing that has been given to him. And so that's kind of, that is the background of what we're going to look at tonight. So we're going to look at our past, Daniel's future now. So let's begin in chapter 11, and verse 1 and 2 state this. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth and will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, there are going to be three kings that come after Cyrus, who is the king of Persia when they conquer the Babylonians. Their names are, the three kings are Cam, Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, and Darius I. Now, the fourth king is the one that we're all... I think most of us are probably familiar with. We've talked about him before in these prophecies. And that his name is uh, Xerxes. You've heard of Xerxes, right? We also know him as through another name. And the other name is Ahasuerus. And you find him in the Old Testament uh, document of, of Esther. Now, if you know anything about Esther, you know that there was a queen in the book of Esther. Her name is Vashti. And Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, he decided to throw this big party. I mean, massive party. And it lasts like 180 days. And he has all of the people in high office there. And then he gets this idea. The idea is, summon my wife in here, Queen Vashti, and I'm going to have her dance before all of you people as you're drinking away. I'm going to have my wife do that. Now, there are some people, scholars, that 
think that he also wanted her to dance nude before all of his friends to show off her beauty. But either way, she decides, you, you can forget that idea right now because she's not going to do it. And because she doesn't do it, well, this changes the course of history in a, in a way that helps later on. So he removes her. Vashti's no longer the queen. And so what he does is, you remember this, it's the book of Esther, right? And so he sets uh, many of his people to go look throughout the whole empire to find the most beautiful woman, the one who would be the queen. And they find one, but she's a Jewish woman. And her name is Esther. It's Esther. And she becomes so instrumental that she, uh, she with her uncle Mordecai, they actually saved the Jews from annihilation. And that's why you have the festival of Purim, these, uh, the Jews celebrate, because of that event that saves them from annihilation. Now, back to Xerxes, the husband now of Esther, and who was the husband of Vashti. Xerxes is the guy, he raises two million men in the Persian Empire. He trains them for four years. They're in training for four years. Because they're going to invade what we now know as Greece. And we know, for those who know history or you watch the movie The 300, you know Xerxes, he marches towards Greece. And he's met there in the Battle of Thermopylae and the battle with the 300 Spartans. And there was more than 300. There was other groups there that were helping if you read your history. But this is the famous battle that takes there. And they fight him off for a time. But they can't hold him off forever. And, that, and so... That happens, and then years later, after the Greeks are, are overrun, defeated, he burns Athens, he does all these things. That's when you read here in, um, in verse 2, then a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm jumping myself, but he's the, he's the fourth king. Now, once he does that, then a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, the Great he rises up now, and Greece was a bunch of what's called city-states, and now they're merging together, and they're forming a nation now. And they're going to battle it, and they're going to fight, and Alexander the Great's going to lead them. And that's where you pick up in verse 3, where you find Alexander. And the mighty king, that's Alexander the Great. He will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This guy is leading the Greek army, and they're conquering, and they're conquering fast. They're swift, and they are marching off the map and writing their own map because there is no known map to cover the areas he's actually conquering. Verse 4, But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he uh, wielded. For his sov sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. His, once, he's, once he's done, we know he dies, he, history kind of says he drinks himself to death. He's bored out of his mind. 33 years of age, nothing left to conquer, and he dies. And nothing goes to his descendants. It goes to the four generals because he, his statement was, give it to the strong. And so they break it up in, into fours right there. And what we're going to cover, and what Daniel's going to cover in the vision, is going to cover two of the four of these generals or areas, and it's going to cover the south and the north. You're going to see those words south and north a lot. When it says south, it is what's called the Ptolemies. That's the, the Egyptian area. That's one area that he gave up. When you see the north, that's called the Seleucids. That is 
that is uh, Syria and some of Babylon, and that's the northern part. There are two others, but Daniel's not going to focus, the, the interpretation doesn't focus on the other two. So you think south is Ptolemies. Whenever you hear Ptolemies, know that has to do with Egypt. You're going to hear that term maybe now in different places. You'll hear it here and there. Seleucids, that's the north. That's the Syrian or some of Babylon. So that's the way you got to look at it as we get into this thing. Let's read on. Verse 5. Then the king of the south. The south is the what again? It's the Ptolemies. It's the Egypt, Egyptian part. Will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north, the north of the Seleucids, to carry out a peaceful uh, uh, arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, as well as the one who supported her in those times. Verse 7. We'll get to what it means in a second. But one of his descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against uh, their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north the north is the Seleucids the south is the Ptolemies for some years now let me tell you what briefly I just said what, what I just read I should say is going on here then we'll move forward. This struggle that we read in four verses, it's 100 years of history. So it's moving like that. There are some specifics. The Ptolemies the south, the Seleucids are the north. So a marriage is going to take place. That's where you see a peaceful arrangement in verse 6. This king of the south, the Ptolemies, he wants to make peace with the king of the north. So he gives his daughter, the king of the south gives his daughter, her name is Berenice, or Berenice, uh, to the king of the north's grandson. This guy's name is Antiochus II. We've heard a lot about the four that we will later on again today. The problem with this is Antiochus II, they're giving him a bride. Guess what he already has? He's already married. And so we got a problem now because he's being given this king of the south's daughter to make a peaceful agreement and arrangement. So what does he do? He basically divorces his wife. Her name is Laodice. Now how many know when a woman gets divorced and thrown to the side in a case like that, that she's not really happy? How many know that, right? Please ladies, help me out with that, right? And so if you weren't a Christian, you might have this diabolical plan to do what to your ex-husband? You're going to kill this guy. Oh, guess what she does? This scorned woman, she kills her husband, she kills his new wife, and she kills their son. So she, she gets her revenge. And what does she do? She puts her son in place as king. But wait, we're not done yet. Guys, this is a soap opera. The woman that she killed, Berenice, who she had killed, or she killed, guess what? Berenice's brother, look at verse 7, it says in the beginning, but one of the descendants of her line, one of her relatives avenges her death. In fact, it's her brother. He says, you killed my sister, I'm going to come and I kill you now. So this is getting crazy, right? 
This is what these people did. And you thought today's soap operas were really cool. And so, no, it's way better, all right? Way better. Now, now let's, I'm going to read verse 9 through 20, and then I'm going to go back and give you some specifics and thoroughly confuse you historically, okay? So that's my goal for tonight. Let me read 9 through 20. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up, uh, up to his very fortress. Verse 11. The king of the south, the Ptolemies, will be enraged and go forth and fight against with the king of the north, the Seleucids. Then the latter will raise great, a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north, Seleucids, will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, verse 14, many will rise up against the king of the south, the Ptolemies. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up, in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. The violent ones are Jews. We'll talk about that briefly in a second. Verse 15. Then the king of the north, the Seleucids, are you tired of hearing that word so far? No, I'm not. Then the king of the north, Seleucids, will come, will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground. Not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases. And no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, that's Israel, okay, with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He would also give him the daughter of woman of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him. This isn't another one of these alliances. We'll talk about this one. This is a bizarre one in a second. Or be on his side. Verse 18. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. So this guy's gone. Then in his place... One will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. The jewel of the kingdom is Israel, is Jerusalem there. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Now, does anyone want to explain all that to me right now? Okay, let me, let me, I have to use my notes because all thoroughly, I just get confused. It's just so much going on there. Now, the first thing you need to know that those 11 verses I read, 130 years of time. That's what it covered. 130 years. So let me tell you some of the things that are going on because it's pinpoint accuracy in this prophecy as we look back at history. Daniel's looking forward. We get to look back. So in verse uh, 15, we have here um, the north, uh, Antiochus III, the north he comes to the south and he defeats the Egyptians and the Ptolemies. So the South controlled, but not anymore. The South is, is driven out of this area. In verse, uh, in verse 16, we see, uh, yeah, in the beautiful land. So the South is driven out, 
and the north takes over the beautiful antiques of Israel. If you backed up again to verse 14, the violent ones among your people, they fight. That's the Jews. They were helping the south fight against the north. Yeah, correct. Okay. Now in verse 17, now it gets pretty interesting. Now you have in verse 17 here, you have Antiochus the third of the north, because he's a Seleucid. He makes peace, because look at verse 17. In the middle, he says, he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Here's what's going on with that statement here, historically. Daniel looking future, we're looking back. So, the king of the north wants to make peace with the king, with, with, these, uh, with the south. So what does he do? No, I'm sorry, the king, yeah, he tries to make peace with the king of the south. He gives his daughter to uh, the king of the south's, um, to his, uh, to his uh, 10-year-old waiting to be king's son. That's Ptolemy IV. This guy in the north gives his, his daughter, a grown woman, to a 10-year-old to marry him. So she goes. She has to wait till he starts to grow up. She marries him when he's 12. Then he grows up. As he grows up, she falls in love with him. Yeah, she falls in love with him. And so by falling in love with him, look at the end of verse 17. It says, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So what happens here, it backfires on her dad. Because she won't stand with her dad because now she's in love with this guy from the other side. Is that a soap opera or what? I mean, now, this, um, this girl's name in history is Cleopatra, not the one you're thinking of. This is a different Cleopatra. The one you and I are thinking about is the one that lived in the 30s, 40s, B.C. with Caesar and, and Mark Antony and stuff like that. This is not that Cleopatra. This is a different Cleopatra. But the soap opera continues. And then in verse uh, 19, we see um, Antiochus the third now, he fails at conquering the world. That's what verse 19 is about. So what does he do in verse 19? He turns his face toward the fortresses of his own land. So he's going to go after Greece. That's what he's going to do. And so he goes that way. But when he goes that way in verse 19, it says he will stumble and fail, fall and be found no more. The Romans push him back and they drive him back. So he's pretty much eliminated. And then in verse 20, you finally have one will arise. This is Antiochus III's son, Seleucus IV. Are you confused enough yet? Because there's going to be a test at the end of this, all right? And so what he does, he sends an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. That's Israel. He sends this oppressor to go raise money, another, steal money from the temple and, you know, and, and overcome that. And he becomes the oppressor and then he kills his own body. So it just goes on and on. So... That's enough there, okay? Can we move on now? You got, you, got, you got all that? Is it all locked in here in your historical map in here? No, okay, good. But anyway, you, you got some of what's that. Okay, verse 21. Here we go. In his place. And by the way, how many of your Bibles have a little marker there above it that says Antiochus Epiphanes? Any your Bibles have that right there? Okay, there's Antiochus Epiphanes. Here he comes into play again. He's the fourth, remember? In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. 
This is who we talked about before, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This guy, he steals the throne from his nephew. Because, and it states right there, he's not been conferred. He is the little horn from chapter 8 of Daniel. He's that guy. He is also a type of the Antichrist to come. So here comes dual prophecy again. Daniel's near future, and yet Daniel's distant future, and still our future to come. We know Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means manifest. But then he adds Theos Epiphanes, which Theos is the word for God. So he is saying, I am Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest the fourth, fourth Antiochus. So he's, he's declaring that he's what? I'm God, man. That's who I am. And so you have this guy right here in place now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make now comparisons. This is what you're going to fill in. We're going to make comparisons again because this is what they're doing here between Antiochus Epiphanes IV and the Antichrist to come. But let me say this before I say that. Are Christians typically interested in end times? Yeah, it's always fascinating, right? Well, end times, I want to know about end times. Yeah, you should be. You should be. But let me tell you something else you should be interested in. Not just end times, but beginning times. See, the first part of this are scriptures. Genesis, the first, like, especially 11 chapters, all the way till you get to Babel, you should be very interested in those. And let me tell you why. Because especially the day and age you and I live in right now, every bit of moral foundation that, that has been built upon by our, many of them, not all, but many of our founding fathers in America, they built off those laws. I will never say America is a Christian nation, no. But I will say, we are built upon Christian foundations because many of them were Christians. And so we are watching and we watch now. We're watching things erode. But it's been eroding for a long time. See, if you don't know the beginnings and then you get into debates with people today about anything that's real popular today, you have no foundation to stand on. And you've got to remember from the get-go when Adam and Eve come on the scene, and they say, no, we cannot, God said we can't eat from the tree. What's the first thing the serpent tells them? He says, has God said? Later on he says it's okay, basically God's whole nine. He says, has God said? So what's the first attack we find in Scripture? It's the attack on God's word, right? What's the biggest attack we find today? The attack on God's word. You know, that it's a fable, it's not real. Do you know that there are so many Christians that think it, that the first 11 chapters, that's this fable, that's not real. You know there's even Christian colleges, not all Christian colleges, that they don't really teach this as a literal thing. And so we're destroying, we're eroding our own foundations. But that's the only place that you're going to go back to and find or find foundation that say marriage, per se, say take marriage. It's between a man and a woman. God said it. Jesus affirmed it in Matthew 19. He went back to the beginning. You always go back to the beginning. And by the way, when he says male and female, he's telling you how many genders are there? <laughs> two. There's not more than two. That's just it. That's your foundation for what you believe. 
When you hear politicians and journalists and, and, and the, the, you know, the different races, really? They're incorrect. But where would you take them to? You got to take them to the Tower of Babel. You got to take them and show them, and, and, or take them back to Adam and Eve. We all come from two people. And we're all scientifically, biologically, we're the same. So there's only one race. So they say races and they think, oh, we're trying to, you know, solve racism. No, they're making it worse. Because once you say races, then you divide people. But if we took them back to the beginnings and there's one race, that begins to solve the lies and the phony crisis that journalists and politicians create in their, they do that so they can tell you, you need to vote for me because I'll solve the problem for you. And all they do is continue the problem. And then after four years or six years, they say, you still need me here because the problem's still there because it's not been solved. Yeah, because you don't even attack it correctly. So you need these foundations. I mean, if somebody came up and said, oh, I don't believe that Bible. And those who know don't answer the question. But if somebody said, you know, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, then where'd they get their wife? What would you say to that, huh? Because that, you're, you're uh, uh, uh. well, you say, well, Let me show you over in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. And so if you go back in time to the very beginning, if they had other sons and daughters, here's the answer, which they're not going to like, but then you give them the answer to that, to what they don't like, is where did Cain get his wife? Louder? It's his sister. You say, oh, that's, that's gross. Well, it's gross in 2023. But if you go back to the very beginning when they were innocent and the gene pool was not affected by, ge- by decades and decades and generations of sin, there's no mistakes in the gene pool, it would be okay to marry your sibling. But there came a moment in time in the, in the law when he said you can't marry your sibling anymore because there's so many mistakes in the gene pool so you don't want to line up too close to a family member because if those gene pools line up and there's a mistake, a mistake, then you have deformity and handicap. Does that make sense? So you've got to know these things. So when I say we're going to talk about end times, great, people love it, but you've got to know your beginnings and you've got to understand your beginnings. Look, if you don't go back to beginnings, then don't bother with the cross because in the beginning, mankind sinned and gave it all up, right? Well, if you don't go back to the fact that mankind sins, then why do you need a cross? So you've got to go back to your beginnings. So those first 11 chapters, they're highly, highly important. They're very important. Can I give you one more? Because I'm on a roll right now. I, mean, I, I love the first 11 chapters. In fact, um, I mean, Chuck, you asked me what book are we going to? I almost made a, a course. I'm going to jo- we're going to Joshua in a few weeks. I almost made a course correction. I thought, I'm going to Genesis. I'm going to do that one. Of course, it would take me seven years to finish it, but, you know. <laughs> and I've, I've taught through it once before. It was a great book. But it, to go through that. But what was I going to say? There's, there's one more I was going to give you. Uh, oh, yeah. When it comes to identity. You take material, they say, we're all just part of the animal kingdom. We're all just animals. You ever heard that one before? You say, whoa, 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 whoa here. You know, you go back to Genesis, you can do this scientifically, but go back to Genesis foundationally, and you go back to day six. God said, says, and God said, let us make the land animals, right? And they make them on day six. But then on day six, it goes on to say, and God said, let us make man in our image. God said, and God said twice, Right? So why does he say it twice? First time land animal, second time humankind. Why does he do that? Make distinction. You're not an animal. We're the highest creation. 
It's, we're, not land, we're not part of the animal kingdom at all. You go to the zoo, you see the gorilla, they're going to say, oh, this is your family. You came from this. No, you didn't. No, you, maybe you tell the guy, maybe you did, but I, not me, man. So you know that, okay? You know that. And there's more you can get into on science and DNA, why we're not part of that. But well, does that enough for now? Okay, so you guys, you guys are going to dive more into Genesis with you? I hope so, because the creation is very important. So here we go, bullet points, here we go. I'm going to make a comparison between, we're going to shoot fast, and you've got to keep your finger in Daniel and one in Revelation as we go. So um, we're going to make Antichrist and Antiochus comparisons. Verse uh, 22 of Daniel 11, it says, The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, he is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He says he, he will shatter also the prince of the covenant. So, bullet point, first one. He removes the respected high priest Onias. That's what Antiochus IV did. He's the prince of the covenant. He removes him. He's going to put his own stuff in place. Now, keep your a marker here, however you do it, and go to Revelation chapter 13. So he removes the religious leader there. He's going to put in place his own religious leaders or in, in religion. That's what he's going to do. This is Antiochus. Now watch what the Antichrist does. We've covered it before, but it's worth covering again. Look at verse 11 and 12 of Revelation 13. It says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Now, this beast here is not the Antichrist. This is what? false prophet, yeah. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, those whose fatal wound was healed. So the Antichrist, he puts his own religious leader, the false prophet, and his own religion in place, and all worship will go to the Antichrist, and what did Antiochus of the Epiphanes IV change, add to his name? Uh, the Epiphanes, God manifest. So you see the parallel between the two right there. They're both declaring that they are God is what they're doing. Now, keep your finger here, Daniel verse, verse 23. It says, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Well, Antiochus is going to practice deception. Bullet point two, he will be a shrewd politician. So, we know that this guy is acting that way, but we know the Antichrist is going to be that way. He's going to make alliance with deception and give him power. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Hopefully you kept your finger in Revelation. Look at chapter 6. He will be a shrewd politician, like Antiochus. Now verse 1 and 2, when you're there, say, I'm there. It says, then I, this is the four writers of the apocalypse. He says, then I saw... When the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a what? Say it. A bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to, and to conquer. Now, stop right there. Remember, this person on the white horse is who? Antichrist. Jesus will ride a white horse coming back in the second coming in Revelation 19. So why does the Antichrist ride a white horse in Revelation 6? He's a copycat. Is he going to have a sword like Jesus in Revelation 19, or is he going to have a bow? He's going to have a bow, but you don't hear of any arrows. So he's going to be somewhat of a smooth operator. 
He's going to be a shrewd politician, the way we see Antiochus is. And he's going to be really good with his words. He'll probably be a very charismatic leader, the kind of leader that, that people love to. You know, people love charismatic leaders, right? Now, look back at verse 24 of Daniel 11. Let's read on about this guy, Antiochus. In a time of tranquility, we're going to draw about three things from this verse, parallels. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a, a time. Okay, bullet point first one out of this verse. He brings temporary peace. It says in a time of tranquility. And so we do know Antichrist is going to bring temporary peace. Is he not? In the seven-year tribulation, what will be the temporary peace time? The first what? Three and a half years. It's going to be peace. It's going to be good. He's going to, make, he's going to solve the world's problems. Does the world have a lot of problems? You better believe it. And there's not, a, there's not a human leader on this planet that's going to solve these problems anymore. It's going to need some kind of demonic enhanced being to solve it. But it's smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It's the smoke and mirrors because you know he's setting up the earth dwellers, the earth dwellers, great tribulation earth dwellers. He's setting them up for all hell to break loose at a certain time. So there'll be a time of peace. Bullet point, second one under, under verse 24. He redistributes wealth. Boy, we've heard that one before, haven't we? Haven't we heard that enough in the last so many years? redistribution of wealth. It says back in verse 24, he will distribute plunder, booty, possessions among them. What's this Antichrist seemingly going to do along with this? He's going to take wealth from people. He's going to take what people have worked for. Because you've got to vilify somebody, right? And so you vilify the hard workers, the people that have got ahead in this great country of ours, and he takes it away. And he's going to give it to the people that don't have. That's a great way to get votes, isn't it? It's a great way to get votes. I always, this always goes through my mind every time, and by the way, the way they take away from the people who have worked really hard now is through heavier and heavier taxation. Do they not? Until, man, they're just taking and taking it, and they're just going to give it away. And so, it's, and I know, like, I'm, I get frustrated too. It's a frustrating thing that you feel powerless in. But this is really, I always think of this, and I think I've shared it before, when it comes to the smoke screen of giving free stuff away, it takes your mind, people, it takes their mind off what's really going on. Does it not? How many have seen the movie Gladiator? Okay, good, you're saved. <laughs> but remember when, when uh, Commodus, who's the weasel in the movie, right? He kills his dad. But remember, he comes back to Rome, and the people are screaming. Some of them, remember the people screaming at him? Because there's some bad stuff going on in, in Rome. But then, what does he do? He starts 100 days of games. But in those games, what does he have thrown out at the beginning of it? Do you remember? What is it? He's throwing out bread. Bread. And the people are going crazy because he's giving away free stuff. But if you remember the two politicians sitting up there, they know what he's doing. They say, and they even say, he's smarter than I thought. He knows, he knows what he's doing. He's getting the people, oh, free bread, and look at all the fun we're having in the games. But, and it takes your mind off all the real problems. And this is what politicians do today. They take your mind off the real deal. We're going to give you and give you and give you and give you. Really? Really? At what point are we going to bankrupt the whole thing? I mean, so it's like, it's a crazy in, in Christian church, as a pastor, we call this the doom loop. 
that you get yourself in a point as a church or even if you had a business that you had it in, or you watch one die, you doom loop down. When your business starts taking a toll downward, you're in trouble. But then you start to panic here and start to clamp down harder here to try to get back to this growth time. You're not going to make it back because you made bad decisions on the way down. You got over the doom loop and now you're in trouble. And that's what's happening. We're watching the doom loop. And they say we can fix the problem. They can't do it. They just can't do it. And it's heading on a doom loop. And I don't know if you watch anything, read anything, and the forecasters, they're, they're expecting a big fall, recession or something coming because you cannot maintain this pace of things the way things are going right now. Now, the third bullet point here out of verse 24 is um, he has limited time. In verse 24 back there, it says that he only has a short time. Ah, huh. Because we know, we know because we, we read our Bibles, that at the three and a half year mark, when he steps in the temple, at that moment, Antichrist knows he's got how much time left? Three and a half years. And so he's got short, like Antiochus, the fourth had limited time, and so he has limited time. Sidebar question, why is the devil so angry? There are multiple reasons, but what's a big reason? We we're, we're kind of hinting toward it right now as we're talking uh, 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 let me show you. Look at Revelation 12. Now watch. Let's see why he's so angry. Here's a big reason why the devil's angry. Look at Revelation 12, 12. It says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, angry, knowing thee has only what? We got a short time. So, the shorter that time gets, the angrier he gets because he only got so much time to unleash his torment. And so that, that's what he's doing. Now, let's go back. You can leave Revelation now. Enough comparisons. Look at verse 25. I'm going to read 25 to 27, chapter 11. He, we're still in Antiochus. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, the Ptolemies, with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand for schemes and will be div- the, for schemes will be devised against him. Verse 26. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him. And his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. Notice this. And they will speak lies to each other. This happened historically, guys. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Here's what's happening. Antiochus invades the south. He invades the Ptolemies. He, he beats the Egyptians. He beats the Ptolemies. But then they decide, the two kings decide, let's sit down to dinner, have a, have a time together, and let's discuss things together and see we can bargain, come to some agreements and stuff like that. That's what they do. That's what you're reading. And that happened historically. But like it says in verse 27, they're both liars. And they're being deceitful and they're lying to each other. It actually happened historically. So it says, it will not succeed. So Antiochus, when he knows he's been deceived after he's conquered Egypt and he leaves not as the conqueror anymore, he's mad and he's angry. And he's going to take it. What do angry people do? They're going to take it on somebody. They're going to take it out on somebody. Okay, verse 28, let's see what happens. Then he will return to his land. So he's heading back north. And the way it makes it appear, he's a, he's, a, he's a Seleucid Antiochus. With much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. 
and he will take action and then return to his own, uh, to his own land. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. He's going to come back to Egypt again. You know, he's not finished. We'll get there in a second. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. In other words, he won the first. He ain't going to win the second time. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. Oh, at Israel. And take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now, here's what's going on. Antiochus leaves there. He's angry. Takes it on. He takes it out on the Jews. Wreaks havoc in the temple. You know, he crushes a minor rebellion in Jerusalem. And so, uh, and so then two years later, in 168 BC, he decides, I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to go conquer what I already conquered, but I didn't get to be the conqueror because I was lied to. I was deceived. So he goes back. And when he gets there, remember here in verse 30, it says, for the ships of Kittim. Who are the ships of Kittim? This is the Roman fleet. The Roman fleet is waiting there this time for him. He's coming back. He's, I'm going to get that guy. I'm going to get that Ptolemy. I'm going to conquer these people. He's upset because, you know, this happened. I was, I was lied to. And so he gets there in the Egyptian harbor. And so when he's there, here's what happened. I think I shared this before, but here's what happened. He meets with the Roman fleet and the two heads of the armies, Antiochus and the Roman, the Roman leader there, the Roman leader of all the fleet and all the armies, they're both standing face to face, and the Roman leader draws a circle around both of them in the sand. And he's backed by this fleet. And Antiochus has his army. And he says, you've got to make a decision, Antiochus. Before you step out of the circle, you've got to make a decision. You either fight or you withdraw. And Antiochus makes a decision. This actually happened. And he withdraws. Because he knows he can't win. And when he withdraws, he's really angry. Oh, he's mad. And he goes back, and man, he just, he takes it out on the Jews. And he defiles that temple. And he slays a swine, a pig, spreads the blood all inside that temple, starts the Maccabean revolt, which ends up with Jews conquering him and cleansing the temple, and now we have Hanukkah. But he's mad. He's angry, angry. Now, what I want to finish off today, tonight is this. I've said this probably countless times, one-on-one with people, in messages, but I want to fit because it just fits right here. And I, I'll never stop saying this. I'll never stop teaching this to try to help people. He is angry. And he's coming back angry. The symptoms of an angry person are chronic irritability with people or situations, chronic impatience with people or situations, or chronic pouting with people or situations. One or two or all three or any combination, if you manifest that on a consistent basis, you don't get angry. You're always angry. Just whatever tips you. Whoever says the wrong thing. Whatever doesn't go right. Whoever cuts in front of you on the freeway. And you just, it's always in there. 
And now here it comes. Here it comes. I'm thoroughly convinced after decades and decades of ministering to people and just watching the side of it, many Christians are angry. I was one of them. I was one of them. And you can manifest it. You can be a passive-aggressive angry. That's what I was. You just keep it inside and you boil. Or you could be an aggressive-aggressive and boom, it comes out once you're tipped. And here it comes. See, here's, here's the thing I want you to think about. He comes back and he goes after the Jews. Question, are the Jews the people he's angry at? Who's he angry at? That Ptolemy that lied to me and these Romans who humiliated me. See, here's what you got to understand. Somebody in this room watching later on. It's something from the past. It's something from the past that makes us angry in the present. You may be married to somebody, dating somebody, and you, they're wondering why you keep getting angry at me. That's not the person you're angry at. It's not. See, the best question you can ask yourself is this. Who am I really angry at? Who am I really angry at? Because once I figure that out, and typically when you start digging that, you'll figure it out. Once you figure that out, then what do you have to do? Then you have to start your road of forgiveness, huh? You have no choice unless you want to keep getting angry. You have to forgive. And let me tell you what I learned from my life and counseling many others. It's not a one-time, oh, I forgive them, and you think you're healed. Oh, really? Really? No. You've got to take that to the cross almost every day of your life and forgive that person or persons. And you keep taking it to the cross and taking it to the cross and take it, I forgive them, and take it, I forgive them. Because what you're doing is this. You will never forget what happened. Don't ex- you'll never forget it. But what you have to do is you have to eventually be delivered and release the emotional attachment of that thing that happened. Because that's the emotional attachment that'll drive you. And once you're free of that, once it's sent away, once you've finally got that thing thoroughly gone, you're free. You're free. You'll never be that same person again. And people will notice the difference. That's a big deal. And if you have even struggles and years of this, trying, then go see a counselor. Go see a Christian counselor that will help maneuver you through it. Because you do not want to go through life with consistent irritation or impatience or pouting. The symptoms of an angry person. This guy, he's angry. But he's angry with somebody in the past. And he's going to take it out on somebody in the present. And that's what we've got to watch, our, watch out for. God can heal us. He's given us the cross. And we've got to take it there. Or else we're going to live our lives with a lot of internal anxiety that we just don't, I know you don't want it, and neither do I. And neither do I. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for your deliverance, God that we could be set free. That we don't have to operate according to old patterns. 
The abnormal does not have to be normal for us. Lord, help us. If any of us in this room are watching later on this week, if we know that we're angry at someone in the past and we see the manifestations of it towards someone today, that we need to get to the bottom of that thing and start taking it to the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your deliverance. You came to set the captives free. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.